Welcome back to the program. We were all very familiar with the expression by Nietzsche that says that that which doesn't kill us makes us stronger. It has become a kind of mantra for a society in which everyone seems under siege or faces some kind of adversity. But is it true? We're told that we learn from our mistakes. But is there an easier way? Does the willingness to lean into adversity make it more likely? Do those who deny adversity's benefits have less of it? And how is the value of leaning into adversity closed down by the power of magical thinking that is often part of our happy talk culture? These questions and many more are all part of the work of our guest, Dr. Norman Rosenthal. Norman Rosenthal is a clinical professor of psychiatry at Georgetown Medical School. He's conducted research at the National Institute of Mental Health, where he was a senior researcher for more than 20 years and was the first psychiatrist to describe and diagnose seasonal affective disorder. He's also the New York Times bestselling author of Transcendence and the author of more than 200 scholarly articles. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Norman Rosenthal to the program to talk about his new work, The Gift of Adversity, The Unexpected Benefits of Life's Difficulties, Setbacks, and Imperfections. Norman Rosenthal, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you here. It does seem as if there is a huge range by which people deal with adversity. Some people, as you talk about, see it as a gift. They learn from it. They're able to, to benefit in so many ways. And yet other people seem to to crack, to fall apart in the face of of adversity, even sometimes in the face of minor adversity. Talk a little bit about that range of human experience in dealing with crises. You know, I think a lot depends upon an individual's constitution, how they were raised. But the point of the book is that whatever you bring to the table, it can always be improved by thinking about it. Because there are ways of processing things that really will help you to handle adversity more competently. Um, They include just accepting that an adversity has occurred. Sometimes that's a very unpleasant truth that you have to accept. They include making a game plan, regulating your mood and your physiology. Uh, What do I mean by that? I mean, you know, besides the usual, getting proper sleep, eating well, exercising, meditation is an incredible uh, tool to help people calm down, steady themselves out. I have found, for example, transcendental meditation to be an amazing tool. It uh, is the subject of my earlier book, Transcendence, Mm -hmm. but it's also what enabled me to write three books in four years and revise another one. I had not been able to get to writing for about eight or nine years until I started meditating regularly. So in that case, the adversity was a kind of a writer's block, a creative block, which, you know, if you're a creative person, that's an adversity. And that was, you know, broken through by steadying out my system. And in one of the chapters, actually, in this new book, The Gift of Adversity, it's called The Gift of Meditation. And I interview three people who had terrible adversities, drug abuse, imprisonment, uh, homelessness, and meditation, amongst other things, helped them get out of it. So all of this is to say whatever you are and bring to the table initially by virtue of your constitution, there are many specific skills you can acquire 
that will make you handle adversity more effectively. Is there a danger sometimes that adversity teaches us the wrong lesson? That, that in, in the moment, in the crucible of adversity, when we try to find the positive in it, when we try to make that lemonade out of the proverbial lemons, that, that the nature of the situation sometimes leads us to learn the wrong lessons. And, and how do we guard against that danger? I think it's a, a really wonderful question. Let's take, let's take addiction, for example. Let's say somebody drinks and then drives which we know is really a bad thing to do. So somebody drinks and he drives and he's weaving across the lanes and he gets home safely. Hangs up the key where it, where it goes and he comes inside and says, there you are, what's this nonsense about drinking and driving? I can do it. I had uh, you know, four or five good ones and there you are, I'm home safely and I can do it again. Well, that's a very bad lesson to learn from that particular incident. He was just had just had dumb luck there. That wasn't the gift of adversity. That was, you know, that was good luck that's going to run out like anybody who plays Russian roulette. And that's not what I'm talking about. You know, I'm talking about somebody who wakes up the next morning and says, my God, to think, you know, I nearly went off the road. I nearly went off the road. And I was just so lucky, but an addict won't say that, you see. An addict will not say that. The addict is more likely to do what they call in the program stinking thinking. I, I was smarter than that. I can beat the drug. So these are, as you point out, wrong lessons to take away. One of the things that, that we find from adversity, oftentimes, is that the way in which we cope with it has a, a physiological impact as much as it does a psychological impact. That we know that research tells us today that, that all the, the stresses created in adversity has a physiological component. Talk a little about that and how it plays into this larger framework that you write about. Well, I think it is true. And I think, you know, when we're in an, a situation of adversity... We need to make decisions. We need to decide what we want to do about the situation. There may be several choices presented to us. And if we're in a steady state emotionally and physically, we're going to make much better decisions. I quote a very fascinating Israeli study where uh, three judges were giving out uh, parole to people who were, you know, coming up for hearings. And they looked at when the judges were most likely to give out parole during the course of the day. And, you know, when you, when you parole somebody, you're taking a risk. It's a risky thing because then if that person uh, is a recidivist, that's kind of a black mark against your name because you made a bad decision. So what they found was that late in the morning when people were far away from breakfast and getting a little tired, they became reluctant to give people parole. You were most likely to be paroled shortly after breakfast and when mm -hmm. their minds were fresh. And what that simply shows is what your grandmother could have told you, is that good decisions are made when the head is clear after a good night's sleep and the belly is full 
and you're rested. And so I think our physiology is very important to deal with adversity in a positive way. Talk a little bit about the stress factor, though, and the way the stress hormones that are released and things like cortisol affect our ongoing decision-making and and, and the long-term impact of that. Well, that's such a good question because, you know, the the stress system, the fight-or-flight response system, which involves the secretion of hormones like cortisol and adrenaline and other things, your heart pumps harder and beats faster, all of that is really equipped for dealing with immediate acute issues. What often happens in our modern lives is that every day people get into work, there's a new set of stresses, there's a new set of challenges, there's a new set of difficulties. And so what happens is that hormones that are meant to be occasional spike, release, release and drop become ongoing grinding away processes that begin to chip away at people's bodies. Uh, They cause high blood pressure, they cause uh, atherosclerosis, which is the complicated word for hardening of the arteries, and that's what leads to stroke and heart attack. The cortisol and adrenaline that grinds on uh, causes blood sugar to to rise, and that predisposes to diabetes. So chronic stress is to be avoided at all costs. And of course, there are many things you can do. Again, diet, exercise, meditate, get your sleep. These are necessary things for settling down the body. Talk a little bit about the difference between adult adversity and childhood adversity and the way we deal with both and the way one, the childhood adversity, often sets us up for how we deal with problems as adults. Yes, I think that's very, very important because if you've been traumatized as a child, if you've lost somebody or you've been abused, that makes you much more vulnerable if you get re-abused later or have later losses. It's very difficult. It, It makes you vulnerable. And so that's one reason why it's often valuable to take care of childhood problems, you know, and strengthen somebody who's been made vulnerable in the past. Uh, When you're an adult, you have so many more resources. And what I often do in psychotherapy is I deal with adults who've had early traumas. And a lot of the work is really helping them understand they're not children anymore. They're adults now. They have a whole palette of resources that they didn't have back then. Okay, so let's see how do we go about using them. And it's very comforting and very reassuring and very empowering for them to realize that they are not these helpless children they once were, even though their nervous system is patterned to feel as though they still are. What does modern research, current research, tell us about how resilient we are overall as human beings? You know, the resiliency literature is uh, rather large, but one study that I'm fascinated by, by a man named Mark Seary, they took these people uh, and asked them how much adversity they had in the past, and they divided those people up into three categories, those who had no adversity, a medium amount, and a huge amount. 
And it turned out that the ones that had had moderate amounts of adversity were the most resilient as adults. They challenged these people by dipping their arms into icy cold water or giving them an intelligence test and seeing how much did that upset their nervous systems. And they found that the people in the middle category were most resilient. So it does seem as though some adversity equips you for being more resilient in later life, but it shouldn't be overwhelming. So if uh, we were critiquing Nietzsche these days, we would say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger unless it almost kills you. What about the capacity for empathy and the degree to which adversity makes us in some ways more compassionate, not only to other situations, but also to the adversity of others? You know, it is such a widespread phenomenon, and I have spoken to many fellow therapists, and we'll often say, you know, when I'm, when I'm suffering in my own life, that's when I do my best therapy. Because somehow, you know, you think, well, maybe I'm suffering so I can't focus on another person's problem. But actually, the opposite usually happens. You know, I feel that person's pain more because the pain of my own issue, whatever that might be, is fresher. So I think that, you know, somebody who's... I saw, for example, in the Boston Marathon, there was this man who had lost a son who actually, when the chaos occurred and bomb fragments were going off, ran into the mess where everybody else was running away. He runs into the mess and stops the bleeding in somebody else just because he knew the pain of losing somebody and just didn't want to see that happen to anybody else. So... You know, pain sensitizes us. It makes us, in a way, better people. Now, does that mean we should go about inflicting pain on everybody so that they'll become better people? I don't think so. However, if pain happens, it is a small consolation to know that some good can come out of it. One of the things that you talk about, and in fact you set the book up this way, is adversity is something that we process oftentimes by creating stories about it, and that helps us to understand it and cope with it. Talk a little about that, Doctor. Yes, you know, stories are one of the oldest ways by which we have learned. Uh, thousands of years ago, sitting around the fire, hearing how you went after the buffalo and how the buffalo turned around and charged and you had to hide behind the tree and so on and so forth. And this is how we learned in the verbal tradition of storytelling. And it still is how we learn. And what they found, often if they've been watching people's responses to presentations, when people give a story, everybody's interested, and then suddenly they start showing graphs and data, and everybody's interest drops. Because we weren't programmed to enjoy graphs and data. We were programmed to enjoy stories. And so that's the method that I've used in this book. In many other places, I've done tons of science. Uh, in fact, one of the reviewers said, anybody who's looking to for his scientific expertise will be disappointed by this book because it's very light on science. Mm -hmm. Well, that was deliberate. 
I wanted to just give people a good read. I wanted to give people stories that they would enjoy and be, they would laugh, they would cry, they would giggle, they would say, oh my God, I can't believe it. It's so, something so stupid. I wanted to move these people so that whatever the wisdom was that came out of these stories would stick more firmly because the story would engage the reader. So it's a different method that I've used here based on the feedback that I've got from my previous books where I would always say, what did you enjoy? And they would always say, the stories. And how is that ability to turn adversity into stories something that we use in coping with adversity? Well, I, I think that the power of the verbal side of our mind is so wonderful in helping us to organize our thinking. In fact, I have a whole chapter called Telling a Story, and it's all about the process of telling stories as a way of processing difficult things. And I refer to the wonderful work of my colleague, Professor James Pennybaker at the University of Austin, of Texas at Austin, who has written, who's researched even people writing for very short amounts about their feelings and their thoughts. Uh, and I've included, even in the book, I've included his writing exercise. They are able to overcome all kinds of adversity, unexpected things like improve their immune functioning or uh, be more likely to be rehired. There's this amazing Texas Instruments study where these Workers were rather brutally laid off from their jobs, and then the issue of rehiring came up, and half of them were given this writing exercise, and the other half were given a control. And the ones that were given the the writing exercise, they got hired more quickly. And when they looked into it, it turned out that it was probably because they were very angry. Now, if you've ever hired somebody and you have an angry applicant, that person is unlikely to get the job. But if they process their anger and say, well, you know, this happened, but that's what's happening with the economy and that's the way the world works and now I'm looking for another job, you're more likely to hire that person because you don't want somebody with an attitude. Talk a little bit about the positive thinking industry, the magical thinking industry that is so pervasive in our society today and the impact that has in many ways of mitigating some of the positive impacts that you talk about from adversity. Well, yes. I think that there's a great amount of belief that if you just want something bad enough, it'll come. Well, I, I'm all uh, in favor of uh, dreaming big dreams, imaging what you want. But then, in my experience, maybe yours is different, you have to set about working to get mm-hmm. that. It doesn't just land up in your mailbox, in my experience. Maybe I'm just unlucky. <laughs> but, you know, what I, I've heard, and it's, it's uh, attributed to Gary Player, the golfer, and many others who have said, you know, the harder I worked, the luckier I got. In my experience, luck mostly comes with hard work. It doesn't just come out of the sky. Some people get the Powerball and the lottery, but they're very, very unusual. And many of those people are actually quite unhappy, according to research. Uh, So I think maybe you really appreciate the, 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 
treasures that you work for as opposed to the ones that just fall out of the sky. Which really sets up the larger question in all of this, which is the kind of object of the exercise. Is the goal of learning from adversity to be better as as human beings, to be more compassionate human beings, to be better in the world, or is happiness in some way some kind of end in itself? And if so, should it be? That's a great, that's a wonderful question. Well, I know a professor who used to say the goal in life is to do well by doing good. And I think what that embodies is the idea that it's not either or. I think happiness is very important. I think people ought to be happy to the extent that they can. I don't believe we're here in order to be miserable. So I'm all for people being happy. But happy people are more likely to be kind people. They're more likely to be generous people because they feel like they have an abundance and they want to share that. So I think the two go together, and I I am a great believer in people getting happier, and I'm also a great believer in people sharing that joy and sharing their, their fruits with others. If we're too happy, though, do we become too complacent? Does that set us up to not deal with adversity in as effective a way? Yes. Well, you know, I, for example, have treated a lot of people with bipolar disorder, and in the manic state, people are just too happy. They're dancing and they're singing, and then maybe there's absolutely nothing to dance and sing about. And uh, so you can be too happy if it's disconnected with the real world. Um, On the other hand, sometimes I have felt just a little flash of envy at people in a manic state. I remember a woman was admitted to our ward and she came in with a gorgeous green dress that she could not afford. It was way over. And we were interviewing her. We all had our white coats on and we were interviewing her. And and I said, you know, you understand this is way out of your budget, you know, and was this perhaps a bad judgment? And she turned to me and she said, look at you all. You look like a bunch of dead ducks. I've always wanted this dress and I'm glad I've got it. So uh, at that very moment, you know, my heart went out to her and I thought, okay, you know, for a moment, let the happiness be out of proportion. You know, that's okay. And uh, we we spoke many times after she got straightened out and uh, we laughed at that together. (laughs) Dr. Norman Rosenthal, the book is The Gift of Adversity, The Unexpected Benefits of Life's Difficulties, Setbacks, and Imperfections. Doctor, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been my pleasure. Just want to let you know I have a website, which is normanrosenthal.com, and people can come check me out on Facebook and Twitter as well. Thank you. Dr. Norman Rosenthal, The Gift of Adversity. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.